You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. One of the biggest parts of what I teach and how I talk about um, this idea of creative focus and creative productivity is this the the piece of the self-forgiveness piece that you have to it's not you don't let yourself slide it's not about being easy on yourself because that's what you think is happening you know when you know like i can't do this because then i'll like get away with it or something (laughs) because you're getting away with it anyway it's happening regardless but it's like you have to forgive yourself and start over every day and if you messed up yesterday and it didn't go the way you wanted to go just say well that was yesterday and i'm gonna do it today That was Jessica Abel, the author of the graphic novel La Perdita and the chair of the illustration program at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. Both within and outside the academy, she helps creative people with big ideas get past procrastination and anxiety and get on with doing their best work. In today's episode, we discuss what happens when people who teach about productivity and creativity get stuck. Believe me, we do, and how we go about getting unstuck. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Jessica, thanks so much for joining me today and being willing to talk about the, um, you know, being stuck in the mid- in the messy middle of a few projects and working your way out of it. I really appreciate that. Well, I mean, it's reality. It's what we do. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, going into this conversation, like, like I do with all my guests, it's always like, well, what's real? What's true? What's firing you up right now? Um, and you know, where we, where we ended up was, you know, sometimes when you teach about productivity, when, you know, you yourself, you know, you, you teach that through your book, Growing Gills, um, you're in comics, you're a professor, like you got a lot figured out, right, as far as how this goes. And at a certain point, there becomes this idea that you've got it all figured out, or you're no longer challenged about it. And I think it could be really useful for people when they hear about the day-to-day realities. Um, and just to see that, you know, if they've got images or, you know, shades of those things, that it's not just them, that it's just, you know, what it means to be creative and and to be an artist and to be productive and so on and so forth. So, so that you pull us into the situation, kind of tell the story about where you are and what you're challenged by. Okay. So, um, right now I am just starting a new semester and this is my second year as a full-time professor. So, um, you know, and a, a department head. So, you know, trying to create new curriculum for this department and so on. Um, and I just finished, you know, long academic summer of doing tons of other stuff. And um, I'm trying to, I'm in the middle of teaching a, what was supposed to be a sort of quick and easy little course. And of course, it turns into this giant project of trying to get it all right and nail it all. And it's just like eating my life for the last two weeks. And it's great. I love it. You know, I'm really excited about it, but it's also just like, oh my how did I do this to myself again? And uh, I'm still, still, still working on my big comic book, Trish Trash, um, Roller Roll of Mars. I have to finish the art for that before the end of the year. And I haven't worked on it in two weeks because of this course. And I just, I'm like, have zero bandwidth left, just like none left. And as soon as this course is over, I have to start working on the marketing for the next cohort of my creative folks workshop. 
So that's where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you are. Well, and you mentioned the, you know, how did I do myself? How did I do this to myself again? Right. And that that's one of those points, again, that um, when you really look at being productive, being effective, being creative, being an artist, being an entrepreneur, um, there are very few times where you learn the thing once and then you're forever cured of it all over again, right? It, it becomes a oh daily God, practice, yes. right? <laughs> uh, a daily practice, daily challenge. And if you teach this stuff, it can become a daily sort of, you know, whip that you get all, all on yourself. Like, I know better, but here I am stuck, right? And so mm-hmm. um, I'm glad you mentioned that, but I'm curious, um, what what happened to the degree that that I, I am I understanding correctly that the course had sort of the natural project creep that happens um, or the surprise or what um, what sort of led you to the place to where it's like, oh, there, there's, you know, um, 14 units of stuff and I've got a 10 unit bag. How am I going to make this work? So what got you there? Well, in this particular case, um, I it's the first time I'm teaching this material. And I've been thinking about it a ton over the last six months, even like doing this course, I've been taking notes and all this stuff. I've been really like, you know, but when it comes down to brass tacks, actually writing the thing and, you know, creating a script and like, you know, creating a slideshow and it's done, I'm doing it live. You know, I'm just, I'm doing three live sessions that'll, you know, then be recorded. Um, It's just an enormous amount of writing and processing. And what do I want to say about this? Because I just haven't done it before. And so, yes, it's project creep to a certain extent, but it's also just, and this is what is typical of me, is just really underestimating the amount of time and concentration it's going to take to do this thing. And, um, you know, even though I did start kind of in theoretically the right time, I didn't sort of set aside like a week just to do this. You know, I was like, I'm still going to, you know, draw and I'm still going to whatever. And I mean, it's just ridiculous. I can't, you know, I just have to do the one thing. And this is what I teach everybody else to do. You know, my whole big thing is the one goal, have one goal at a time. And I always have three to four, like always. And I keep telling myself that I'm going to not do that anymore. (laughs) And then I keep doing it again. And I, and I mean, I think that while there's part of me that makes me, that thinks like, oh, well, how can I teach this if I keep messing it up in the same way over and over again? On the other hand, I feel like this is why I understand how hard it is because I know what it feels like. This is what this is what makes me a good teacher rather than a bad teacher. Like I I see how well it works in my students and my students are actually put this into place and they actually do it. I'm envious of them. I mean they they get it right and I'm like why can't I learn my own lessons, you know? But I think that that, you know, one of the biggest parts of what I teach and how I talk about um, this idea of creative focus and creative productivity is this the the piece of the self-forgiveness piece that you have to it's not you don't let yourself slide it's not about being easy on yourself because that's what you think is happening you know when you know like I can't do this because then I'll like get away with it or something (laughs) because you're getting away with it anyway it's happening regardless but it's like you have to forgive yourself and start over every day and if you messed up yesterday and it didn't go the way you wanted it to go just say well that was yesterday and I'm going to do it today so I'm really trying to um implement that at least. And I think I'm doing okay on that side, that it's like, well, I did it again. I'm not going to hate myself about this. I'm just going to get through it. And I'm going to try to figure out next time how not to do this again. 
Yeah, well, I like to say the thing about the one goal thing, which which I'm an advocate for, but in many ways I'm in the same position where it, it becomes an ideal, right? It becomes the ideal that we strive towards. Um, but when we have these multi-domain lives, I mean, you mentioned being the chair of a department, right? You have the the full-time professor, you have, you know, the artist side where you're writing and finishing or you're illustrating and finishing a book, and then you have sort of the entrepreneur thing. I think where it gets super challenging is we forget that each one of those domains of life um, have different ways in which they intersect and change those goals and, some, you know, creep here or, you know, um, project debt here gets applied over here. And then all of a sudden, like in one domain, you might have one goal, but you've got too many domains, right? And so right. that's where I think, especially, you know, if you're teaching um, – you know, college students and things like that, they have fewer domains, right? Um, fewer sort of domains and demands on their time a lot of times. Sometimes they don't, right? And so it can be their one thing. Whereas when you have a really rich and multi, multi-dimensional life, like they're going to come in and intersect in different ways. And so the goal is always not to, like if you carry three main goals in each one of those domains, that's going to end up with a whole bunch of different goals and a whole bunch of different distractions. So at best we can pull it down and say, okay, for this slice of my life, this is the project mm-hmm. and at least find some peace there. But I, I love how you say um, self-forgiveness because I'm, I'm also on the same thing where it's like, I think one of the pillars of productivity is compassion, but compassion for yourself um, and for other people. Right. And just recognizing that you are this organic being flawed at times <laughs> Right. And we're not always up to date with, you know, with what's going on. And we don't make great decisions all the time. And you end up in this place where you're stuck and you maybe don't know what's going on. And there's like the work required to get something done. And then, you know, imagine a Venn diagram. So the total amount of effort required to get something done, that's the big circle. A little piece of that circle is what's actually the work required. And the rest is the story about the work. Right. And about how we beat ourselves up and about how, you know, we carried like, I should have done this, I should have done that. That actually, those stories do nothing to actually advance the work, right? Mm-hmm. They do everything to detract from it, but here we are, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's um, always sort of trying to minimize the, the degree to which those stories are the work as opposed to displacing the work. So when you get caught in these periods like this, how do you do the sort of mindset work, the story work? Um, that, um, helps it not be so onerous for you? Um, I think that, I mean, when I'm really in the weeds, like I am this week, I, um, am too busy to think about the mindset stuff. I just do the work. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of times that's my attitude about it is just to just be head down and, and kind of go through it. And when I get into trouble with mindset stuff is when I have just a little bit extra time. And often when I'm on my own, like I'm traveling by myself or something like that, it can get ugly. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. Like, what does my life mean? Why am I doing things this way? And like all those kinds of big questions where, you know, you sort of question all of your choices and so on. And um, in some ways I think that, you know, my own, and I'm proud of my accomplishments. I'm proud of what I do. And, and I, I like what I do, you know, I, so I don't want to get, you know, mislead anybody about that. Mm-hmm. That's not what I say, but, um, I feel like a lot of my busyness and it's, and it isn't busy, like busy work, but like just filling my 
life with projects is about not being in that place, you know, that I just fill my life with things to do. And then I don't have to sit there and wonder why am I working on these things? Because when I do, it's, it's like, it, yeah, it takes it out of me for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about that because last year I figured out for myself that I had gotten, I'd gotten to the point to where I'm really good in a crisis. I'm really good on a deadline. I'm really good when there's like that pressure point that pushes me to get something done. I'm not so good when that doesn't exist. Right. And so I recognize for myself, like to what, you know, the, the pondering that I had is to what degree does that mean that I end up creating the crises or that I end up creating the scenarios because I'm, I know what to do in those scenarios versus not having those scenarios. Right. And so, um, you know, here we are a year later where I'm, I'm in the thrash with a lot of that because I'm actively not doing the things that will create deadlines and crises and things like that, but having to figure out what it's like to be productive, right? And to be on point and to be focused without those things. And it's super that challenging. That is a big question, isn't it? Yeah, it's it super really challenging, is. right? Um, I mean, that's what my, my uh, students at the Creative Focus Workshop come to me for, basically, because the whole you know, structure of what I'm trying to teach is about um, people trying to do big, ambitious, creative projects that are totally self-motivated mm-hmm. or at least mostly self-motivated. So that includes entrepreneurialism, you know, like starting businesses and whatever. It's also you want to write a novel or you want to do whatever and trying to figure out how to motivate yourself to actually do those things and carve out reasonable time in your completely busy life full of all kinds of other goals. That is the big question because if you don't do it, it never happens, right? There's just no, it's, I mean, yeah, you're, you're out of luck. Like you can't, the novel is not going to get written unless you figure out how to do it without somebody sitting on you. Yeah. And you know, the, the musing for me, and I don't have a strong, I don't have a solid answer for this yet. Maybe I will two years from now. Right. Um, but what I don't want to believe is that that sort of anxiety and pressure is a necessary ingredient to the product being done. Right. In that, and I'm not talking about just like, for instance, I'm working on a book proposal and there's a piece of it that I'm working on this week. I'm fleshing out the table of contents and sort of honing that down. And I won't have that done by the end of the week ish. Right. And so that could be Sunday. That could be Friday. Like it, either one works for me. Um, now there's a way in which one can go about that. Right. I can go about that where it's like, it's just a natural part of the thing that you do. Right. But then there's the other sort of more stressy way of like, I've got to get this done by Friday. Like all those types of things. And, um, you know, the current journey that I'm on is leaning more into that former, right. Where, um, there's a natural progression in which I'm doing things. If I do it along that timeline, everything will be fine. Should, could I do it faster, better, smarter, cheaper? Probably. But you know, that's not, that's not the route I'm taking here. Um, and what I will say is it's, it's hard to quant, it's hard to really qualify, but it's a different, it feels different, right? It feels a lot different. And what I was saying is I don't want to believe that that unnecessary, negative, stressy part is a part of the process. It might be. I might be completely wrong about this. It might be. But what if it's not? You know? I don't think it has to be. And I mean, I have done things, you know, uh, where I didn't have that stress feeling and I just kind of did them over a long period of time and eventually got them done. Um, mm-hmm. 
often in order to finish it, I would figure out some way to impose a deadline on myself, like to really, you know, do it for a long period and it would be fine. And then I'd be like, I have to, I really need this out of my life. And therefore I'm going to figure out some way to make it hard for myself. Um, not always though, but the, the main thing for me with that is, um, that most things, and this is like what's going on with me right now, right? Most things take you two to three times the amount of time you think they're going to take you. Like even when you account for that, even when you account for the two to three amount of times, right? It's sort of Hofstadter's law here. It's like um, <laughs> things always take longer than well, you I think they'll think. That, that, that could go endlessly. Um, I mean, there's, they take an amount of time. Mm-hmm. They take some amount of time and then you're done with them. That's the, the beauty of them is that usually they're done at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the amount that it takes me is I, I never like I'm not good at estimating that. Nobody's good at estimating that I know is good at estimating that. And it's always like two to three times the length of time. And so basically if you – work on something and you think it's going to be done in a week and it takes three weeks, that's probably normal. You know, it's probably okay. And so, but the only way that's going to work is if you don't really, if it's like okay for it to take three weeks, you know, you're like, I'd like to get this done in a week. Three weeks is okay. Then you don't have to be stressed out about it and don't have to freak out about it. But that's, that's the only way. And I mean, that is a Zen level of mentality that I am, I'm rarely in possession of. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of like being a strategist, right? Because to be a strategist is to be a control freak because you just are, it's part of what it means, right. To, to do that. But the more you do it and the more you, you sort of lean into that, the more you realize how little control you have over anything, right. And the things are going to take a certain thing. So you end up in this sort of state to where your natural tendency is to be a control freak at the same time that you know that you have very little control over what happens and things are going to happen the way that they're going to happen, right? And that's learning, where the self-forgiveness part comes yeah, in. Yeah, that's where the self-forgiveness part comes in. <laughs> and learning to sort of sit in that duality, right, mm-hmm. is the hard part, right, of still endeavoring, still doing the best you can to make a plan that works and to come up with strategies that work. And at the same time, accepting how limited you are <laughs> in so many different ways, that's the work. And I think there's a very similar sort of thing when it comes to exactly what we're talking about when it comes to estimating one's time is doing the best you can, right, to figure out about how long things are going to take, but then recognizing that you're likely going to be wrong um, and you're going to have to adjust and things like that. Mm -hmm. And you have to leave a lot more slack than I ever do, you know, just a lot more empty time. Um, And when I do leave empty time, usually it, it gets eaten up by the stuff that I you know, misestimated, <laughs> misunderestimated. Is that the word? Yeah, misunderestimated. Um, we're gonna we're gonna put it in the word. I uh, put it in the word category and in, in the not word category. Well, I'm curious because you mentioned that. Um, so you've got the current project that 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 um, is taking the time that it's going to take, and mm-hmm. right after that, there's another project lined up in the queue. Um, so tell us how. Um, how you work through that sort of tension. Cause at some point there's going to be some project at the end of this that you had planned to do this semester by the end of the year that is either going to be incredibly compressed or it's going to be punted into the, the following year. How do you work through that? Like knowing where you are right now? Um, I think that's a, that's a super good question. And I think historically, mostly what I've done is I've just gotten realistic about it at some point and said like, okay, well, something's not happening. And just take that thing and take it off and just say, okay, that's later. I'm going to do that at another time. 
And, um, you know, frankly, usually there's something that you can do that with. Um, often it's not, it's not a fun decision. It doesn't feel good. It's not something you want to put off. Probably the thing you want to put off least. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I'm pretty cold-eyed about that when it gets to that point where you're just like, that is not, that just doesn't fit. Like, there's no way that those things are going into, you know, these large things are not going into that small bucket. And, um, you know, I may hit that this year. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely underestimating the amount of work that I have coming for me in October. Um but I also know that I'm underestimating it. And so I'm trying to like get my brain around that part right now where I'm just like, okay, how much am I underestimating it? <laughs> like, what are we talking about here? Are we talking another couple of days? Are we talking like this is going to be mid-November? Like what, what scale are we at here? And um, I just remain less good at that than I wish I were. Yeah. Yeah. I, I call it the um, project cage match. And it's just sort of like a wrestling wrestling metaphor, which I keep going back and forth about. But anyways, it's like there are some projects that are just going to win. They're going to throw everybody else out of the ring. And, and no matter what you do, those are the strong ones, right? And then, as you mentioned, there's always something that can be let go of. And we sort of mentioned the aspirational to-do list, which we'll talk about here in just a second, right? There's always sort of those bonus things, right? There's like, but you may not claim them as bonus, right? You may think that you're really going to do it in, in like the best of times, right? I'm going to totally mm-hmm. get to that. And those things just get punted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they they get punted, thrown out. Where I am with those right now is if I can do, if I can do the cage match before I even decide on things. Like of these seven projects, which one is going to lose? Like if I know that there are a couple of little squirrely ones that are going to lose anyways, they just get bumped off the list anyways because I know that's going to happen. I don't even want to hold any emotional yeah. weight for them. Like sorry, bye, right? Right. That's that's the reality. That's, I- Right. That's the idea debt thing that I talk about, where it's like if you the the energy of holding all of those things in your head at the same time is enormous. Yeah. And and the the self-blame that comes with thinking you're going to get something done, you're going to really work on this thing and you're not going to work on it. And there's no way you can get to it. And maybe you don't even want to. I mean, that's the other thing like that. It's just it's like a huge portion of your brain power that's devoted to this stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, I love the cage match idea and I totally do that now uh, much more than I ever did before where I will, you know, I have a weekly review and I have a quarterly review and I'll like look at my list. and I'm just like, so I thought I was going to do this in September. I'm not, I'm going to put it in January. Like, you know, or I take it off completely because there's a lot of things in the last couple of years that have just said, I don't know why I even have this here. Like, I, I mean, in theory, like in a life where I have no work job or anything like, okay, but no, no, no. Like life is too short for this. Yeah, life is too short for this. And that's where, um, you know, as a, as I'm accruing projects now, and we've we've had a couple conversations here in the team in the last few days where there were projects that we sort of put in in the quarterly in this year's plan last year. Where we're looking at it and we're like, is that even still relevant? Like, why do we need that? Because we have better information now. Like, and so some of them are around some different campaigns and things like that. But it was like you know, we actually figured out that this one does the work that this one was supposed to do. So we don't necessarily need this other one to do the work that this one is already doing, but we hadn't planned on doing this one. Right. And so in the way that things emerged, but all I'm saying is I think we're getting better at when we drop something in the project parking lot, we're saying why this project isn't important. So two years from now or a year from now, when we finally get around to it, it's like, this is why it was important. Totally not important now. 
Um, and so we could just let that one go, right? Um, it's beautiful when you can do that because then you just you feel so clean about it and just feel like awesome, like this weight is lifted off me. Unfortunately, many of them are not like that, but when they are, when they are, the yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, sort of the other thing that we're working on is now we're pretty much the, like every new project has to fight its way into things because it's a default no, right? Because that that's the um, especially coming from me as the sort of creative mayhem maker right? Is that I'll come up with all sorts of ideas over a weekend of things we should do. Right. But when they all start off as a no, uh, <laughs> and they have to fight their way on, it makes it a lot easier. Right. Um, but we still, it's, yeah. it's the same thing. We end up in the same position where, where we're talking about here, where it's like this, we said we were going to do this in October. What is this thing? Like, does it matter? Like what about the other stuff? And so you know, we're, we're, we're trying to do a better job of not just punting it, as opposed to say, as opposed to saying, does this actually matter? And because if we can eliminate it completely, that's better, right? Than punting it because in February we're going to look back at it and say, like, what is this thing? And now it's like two years, um, two years in the making, and we have to talk about why we came up with the idea and then why we punted it and then now why it matters now. That, that's way too much, you know, debt or you know, sort of meta work around a project to not be doing it, you know? Absolutely, and you know, I think that whenever you can just delete something, it's the best. Um, even if it's a little bit painful and you're like, I really do kind of wish I would get to this, but I just have all these other things that are like just much more important to me and just much higher priority. And I'm not, I know I'm not going to get there. And you, you know, for me, some of the things are purely creative projects, things that I just like to do because I'd like to do them. And I know they have no career implications. You know, they're not going to make me money. There's like, you know, they're just stuff I want to do. And some of those I've actually just deleted like any notes about them. But when they come back, I'm like, oh, I still do kind of want to do that thing. Like, <laughs> that might come back one day, like when I'm retired or something. But I have to remember that it's not like they're just other, I just have other priorities and we only have so many hours in the day. And so this thing of like deleting is one thing, but then if you're not going to delete it, then you have to get it, you know, slotted into like, space on the calendar you know it's gotta live someplace and if it's just sort of vaguely like january then it's not going to happen you know it's got to have much more concrete parameters than that obviously when you're planning 12 months out you're not putting it on the hour of the day but you know saying like this week is going to be this or this month is going to be devoted to this project and that that means i can't do all these other things yeah yeah that's where i mean on our team we we try to stick to five things no more than five things in any given month and now what that means is like there might be five sort of team projects like joe might own one angela owns one i'll own one but collectively we can't each own five projects because they're not going to happen right um but definitely once we go over five is that's when the cage match cage match comes in because it's like okay guys five more than five things which of these are not going to go like what's what's naturally going to happen, which of these can be bumped and booted and so on and so forth. And so in our, what we're working through right now is that's where that booting process um, of the things that didn't make it, those automatically get applied to like the next quarter. But then the next quarter we're like, Oh, like other things have emerged. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the reason I'm just going to pull everybody in. The reason we're talking about this is because again, these are the things that, you know, you've got two people who write about creative productivity and momentum and things like that. Like this is where the work actually still is, right? This, there's no, there's no point in time where you have an easy answer. Like, boom, just do this. Right. Um, because creative projects 
I, I like to think about them like the mythical hydras. Like, you know, you cut off one head and then two more sprout up, right? Um, or less violent. I like, mean, let me say, ahead. like, you want that to happen. Yeah, like, you want that's that what to happen. You want, out, you want them to produce new thoughts and ideas. That's what's great about them. I mean, that's what makes creative work so rewarding. It also makes it complicated because then you have to decide, like, what do you do now? Like, which way do you go with this thing? And, um, but that's, that's why it's worth it. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you put that because it's not like it gets easier. It actually gets harder as you go along because when you can write, say, any book because you've written a series of books in the past, like it gets harder because there's not an obvious choice of what, what book you should write. Or when you can do any next product, you know, in your business, it gets harder because like which of the ones do you choose and there's a different decision thing as opposed to when it's like right in front of you. And so, mm-hmm. and that's where I, I love the journey of creative people. Cause there's that point, maybe, maybe you'll disagree with this one and I'll be, I'd love to hear the point of disagreement, but there seems to be a point, a trajectory point in a career where we have that burning desire to really create something. And we know roughly what it is, or we know with the medium or like, we know we want to do that thing. Super manifest, right? And that has a lot of motivational force. It's a beautiful thing, right? But as you lean into doing that thing and that becomes part of your day-to-day reality, in some ways you can lose the burning desire, the same sort of magic that you had at the beginning of it. And it either converts into a bunch of shoulds because it's your career and it's your business or something, but it just, it feels different. The, the, your joy of doing it is not sufficient for you to prioritize doing it, you know? And I think that's where it becomes challenging in a lot of different ways, because that's where we, in different moments of ourselves, like that person that loves to do those things will add a bunch of stuff to the list, right? Mm -hmm. When it comes time to doing it. Well, because you want to get back into that, what did uh, one of my students that called it her slutty new ideas? So slutty new idea, you don't have to like wash the dishes, like doesn't, you know, whatever, but pretty soon she shows up and like, you know you know, gray old, old lady underpants and, you know, sits around and the, doesn't make the bed and doesn't do the laundry. And then you have to have your new slutty new idea. So <laughs> it's just very funny. I wouldn't describe it that way, but I like how it's described. <laughs> yeah, it was a funny um, analogy. She's a funny person. But so that's, I think that's, that happens all the time. And I think that the, the answer for me in that is I don't, first of all, I don't try to chase joy in creative projects. Um, I try to chase um, complexity and intellectual engagement, you know, just like getting deep into it, mm-hmm. getting you know, really tucked into the problems in it. And if it stays challenging to me in a, not in a depressing way, like I don't know how to do this, but in a way where I, I'm really engaged in the whole process of like solving the problem, that's plenty for me. And I feel like um, for most people who haven't, worked their way through multiple creative projects, that's where it becomes really problematic for them because they don't trust that that can be something that they have. You know, when you just start with that um, sort of joyful feeling um, about like, oh, I'm so excited about this thing. It's usually you're thinking about an end product that's years out, you know, and you have no, um, you have no idea what the path is between here and there. And so you get lost in the middle. You, You don't know what it is. And the answer, if, if the goal is still, you know, if it's the basic mode of work is still something you want to be doing, which it isn't always, um, you know, you might figure out you had the wrong idea to begin with. But the if the basic thing is what you want to be doing, then the answer is always to go deeper. You know, it's always to do more 
Um, and, you know, one of the things I, I teach people to do is um, what I call a, a focus session where you sit down with somebody and you, you try to talk your way through the stuck point in what you're doing and explain it verbally. Um, and the person almost doesn't even have to talk sometimes. You know, you just have to be able to say it and you can read whether they're confused or not, like on their faces. And it's just an incredibly powerful technique. It seems so dumb, but it's like nobody talks about this stuff. They just sit with it in their house and they think, I'm, I'm an idiot for not being able to do this. And they don't bring it out. You know, the stuff we're talking about right now, this kind of conversation doesn't happen enough. Like I get stuck, you get stuck. We talk, we need to talk about that. And so the more you talk about it, the less you feel like a crazy person. And that's always a good thing, you know? So, um, so basically I think it, the, that core motivation needs to shift over time as you become a more mature, uh, creative person, whatever medium you're in to appreciating the interplay between the elements that you're trying to master. And even when you get into the dark forest, you get into that point where you're overwhelmed by all the parts and they're floating around you and you feel like a total moron and you can't master this stuff. And everybody gets there. If you're doing something that's challenging, something that's hard, something that's, you know, like just at the edge of your ability, which is the things you should be doing, by the way, mm -hmm. um, then you're going to get to that point where you don't feel like you have mastery over the whole thing. And when you're at that point, you have to go, oh, this is, that's why, you know, this is why. And now let me go talk to somebody and try to talk my way through that middle point. Um, and get to the other side of it. And then it's just so, it, it's so rewarding when you get there. Like when you have that experience once, twice, three times, and you realize what that feels like, that's enough motivation to get there. At least it is for me. And I think for most people I, I know who are professionals at this, they get that, that, that yes, there are moments when you're tempted by the new idea and you just want to drop this thing and screw it. But um, the, then you miss out on what are much deeper rewards, I think. Yeah, I love that you say that, you know, that the, the art is going deeper. Now, what I will say is um, I've seen enough creative folks that get to that point use deeper as a another way to procrastinate and not do the work because you know what I'm talking about. Like, mm -hmm. it's just like, oh, I've got to go from my current level of creative competence to, you know, world class and I don't know how to do that and so on and so forth, right? So we're not saying use it as a cudgel that way, Right. Um, right. but to explore, you know, what's a different way that you can use this creative expression and different, you know, so on and so forth. Like, like for me still to this day, every post that I write, if, if the whole post is not something that feels particularly artful for me, and sometimes it doesn't, right. Sometimes it's just, I've got something to say, I'm going to say it, but it's not necessarily in that sort of rich expressive art, but even still on those things, there tends to be a sentence or a paragraph that has some, artistry or musicality to me. And I might like write something and get, you know, 1500 words out in an hour and then spend the next hour just messing with that paragraph to get it just right. Right. And so it doesn't have to be all of your work and it doesn't have to be super hard, but it's just finding that place of wonder and expertise and craft and sort of pride that you can have in that work. And I think that's enough to get back into it. Um, but also on that note, I was thinking of while you were talking this I got this from Seth Godin in um, his audio program, Leap First, right? And what he was saying was that um, it's not that marathon runners don't get tired. It's that they put the tired somewhere else, right, um, in the process, right? Where a lot of us, when we're running 
like the tired is with us right now. Right. And we can't, <laughs> we can't think about anything but the tired. Whereas somehow they, you know, they put it somewhere else. Like they know they're going to be tired. And um, whether he said this or whether I, I drew the link, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but he gets credit for it if it sounds brilliant. Um, I kind of think of creative discomfort in that way. It's like there's going to be discomfort somewhere, right? It depends on where we're going to put it, right? And when we get stuck, we can either say, okay, my discomfort right now is showing up and saying, I'm stuck with this. I'm not really sure what's going on. I know I should know how to do this, but nonetheless, here I am, right? We can make that the discomfort and leave it there, or we can make the discomfort of not doing that and then sort of flailing and thrashing for three months, right? And that's where the discomfort comes. And But somewhere along the process, there's going to be some discomfort because if we're doing things that matter to you, like you're going to thrash, you're going to get stuck. Like we don't thrash over taking the trash out. We either do or we don't. Right. Um, but these things that matter to us, oh yeah, we'll show up because that's where the perfectionism comes in. That's where imposter syndrome comes in, so on and so forth. And so I really love that you mentioned, like, you got to show up and talk about these things. Um, discomfort is going to be somewhere. Yeah. And I, I don't necessarily mean like therapeutic talking. I mean, like, like, talking as a tool, yeah. you know, that, um, it's, I mean, of course it's therapeutic too. It's great to con- connect with people, but like the more you can articulate, um, verbally, like what you're going through and like what you're trying to, and I don't mean emotionally, but like what you're trying to, the pieces you're trying to put put together and like where the, where's the glue between these things and how do I get from here to there? And the problem is this character is this and they don't have that, you know, or the problem is that this idea should manifest in this way, but I don't know how to display that. And like, what's the example? Let me see. Let me see. And you, you know, and you can often hit on the answer in that way. Um, and refusing to stay, to force yourself to stay in the chair and like, just beat up on yourself, you know, cause that's the other, like, yes, you can go away and, you know, watch Netflix or play video games or whatever. That's one way of avoiding the problem. But another way is just to sit there and go like, I know I can and kind of, you know, grind down on it. And yeah, you'll get there probably eventually, but it's going to take you a lot longer and be a lot more painful. And um, one of the things I think that was a great discovery for me is that art doesn't have to be painful. Like Mm -hmm. it's okay if it's fun. Like it doesn't, you know, you don't have to suffer Mm -hmm. all the time. You're going to suffer sometimes. So might as well try not to suffer all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say art, I just mean like creative work in general. And it, and you know, I certainly feel like all the stuff that I'm doing on the entrepreneurial side is like falls in exactly the same kind of category. And I struggle with the exact same blocks and the same kinds of um, issues of getting my butt in the chair and, and getting it out and all that kind of stuff. It's the same stuff. It's all about trying to make new connections in your brain and, and solder them together and make them, you know, make new things in the world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as far as liberating goes, one of the things that I, that I discovered earlier on that was incredibly liberating for me was realizing that all of these artists and really change makers and creative powerhouses, they all have like these little buddy groups where they talk to each other about the work and when they, about getting stuck and what they're working on. Like there's, I have yet to find a solo creative powerhouse. Right. I found them like they might be more or less hermitish. Right. But still they're in these groups. Right. Um, And they talk to each other and they get themselves unstuck and things like that. I'm like, oh, I don't have to figure this out by myself. And me not figuring it out by myself doesn't mean that I'm less than or anything. It's like this is a part of the deal. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I I would say masterminds. 
They could be masterminds. They can be, you know, um, cause I'm totally going to call them little buddy groups from now on. Cause you, like, yeah, little buddy groups. like such a, but like little buddy groups, that's, that's my new name for them. All right. Little buddy groups. Um, so yeah, some, some call them masterminds, but others just call it like salons. Like they have all of these different names. When you look at the impressionist, there's like five or six of them, right. Yeah. Having these debates in the Paris coffee house about like what they're going to do about the, the art galleries and things like that. Right. And so that's how they were made. They managed to be successful. It's not that they were just sitting there in some dank, you know, room painting and, and toiling away by themselves. Like there are parts of the work where they were doing that, but there are a large part of the works where they're coming together and talking about the work and where they're stuck and what they want to do and their approaches. And so hugely yeah. liberating because, you know, that's the myth is that it's all like, you got to figure it out by yourself. Right. And I mean, I teach in an art school, so we're constantly both talking about sort of having a crew, you know, having a community, like you have a cohort of students that you're with, and these are the people you're going to be going through your life with. And you're going to, you know, have galleries together, and you're going to do events together, you're going to help each other out. So you have that on the one side, and I think students recognize that, but there's still always this myth, as you're saying, of the, you know, heroic solo creator who has to do everything alone, you know, in their studio. And I think things flip back and forth you know, that you, you sort of know, people know about, you know, salons and whatever. But, you know, you, throughout um, history and in, in visual art, you have these, and, and literary art as well, you have these clusters of people who help each other out and who sort of recommend one another and, and help sometimes through creative problems, sometimes just through life problems, like how does this all function? Maybe, but also they they really influence one another, you know, they influence one another and in like the way that they look at the world. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm married to another cartoonist, Matt Madden, and he's um, really interested in experimental comics and in particular um, work that's constrained. So it has rules and sort of follows these rules. And um, it's a, a kind of work, you know, so there's constrained literature, constrained art, all the different stuff. And he's really interested in that. And this is a kind of work that I had no awareness of at all. And um, did not, it, it's not a thing I'm naturally drawn to. But when you were talking earlier about um, how, how did you put this? We were talking about how projects are just kind of like, you could choose anything. You could write any book. You could mm -hmm. do what, any whatever. Constraints is the answer. Mm -hmm. You know, you make rules um, and the rules can be kind of arbitrary and they still work. Um, and the idea that constraints cause and help and support creativity is uh, contrary to what most people <laughs> understand, um, but it's true. It's absolutely true. And I am a convert to that. Oops. I am a convert to that. And, um, and that's because of uh, my husband, because of being in like a sort of creative community with him, you know, for all these years. Absolutely. I mean, there's a reason why so many master poets end up taking up haikus, right? I mean, there's many reasons, but trying to get, that form right on a daily basis or on a weekly basis and to make something masterful in there. It's a huge creative challenge that fuels people. Um, and so, um, but we see versions of that all across the different, you know, creative forms where people are like, I'm going to write, you know, a short story. I'm a novelist, but I'm going to write a short just to, to hone, you know, sort of that constraint, or I'm going to do this thing, or I'm going to create this character who has this critical flaw that, you know, is, is a constraint on what they can do. And you end up with these really rich characters, right? So you're absolutely right. I mean, it kind of, 
is a callback to where we started because when you look at deadlines and when you look at sort of those those pressure points that we mentioned earlier, those are constraint. Like you only have this amount of time to get this thing done because if we don't put that there, then mm-hmm. it will like there's no point in time in which it gets priority of effort and we don't, you know, we don't feed it so it doesn't grow. And so there's a way in which, you know, having a healthy deadline or a healthy constraint in that way can catalyze the creative process, just like there's a way in which having an unhealthy deadline can actually um, sort of completely undermine the creative process. Yeah, I agree with that. And I I feel too that um, there's a, what constraints do is they gamify life in some way. You know, like when I give students assignments um, with sort of arbitrary constraints, that's the kind of thing that that Matt does. you know, the, the sort of famous literary um, uh, example of this is um, the book, um, I don't only remember the French title. Anyway, there's a book um, by uh, Georges Perec, which is written without the letter E. There's no letter E in the entire book. You know, that is a constraint and it's totally arbitrary. Like why the E? I don't know. It's written in French. It's about his mother. The French ending, the, fe- the feminine ending is E. You know, so like that's that's tough. Like mm-hmm. that's really hard, and it's four hundred pages long. So, um, you know, when I give my students c- creative constraints to, to for drawing projects or whatever, they are like joyful. They just get excited, and they don't even like they don't realize that that's what's happening. But they're just like, this is so like I don't know. I'm thinking things I would never have thought before. And um, the more arbitrary in some ways, the better it works. And so, yes, deadlines are um, a constraint and a lot of other things about the way we work are constraints. Some of them are not as much fun. And maybe the, the key is to make something weirder. <laughs> like, you know, when you, I, I mean, I've seen people do things like, like challenges for themselves. Like I'm going to make a video for one minute for, you know, every day for 50 days or whatever it is. And like, that's a creative constraint. You, you are, you know, or, or other kinds of challenges like that. And that can be really fun and really revealing, you know, it can push you to new places that you wouldn't have gone before. Yeah. Yeah. I find that, um, in, in sort of my own writing right now, like sometimes it's hard for me to write at productive flourishing of all things. Like these are people that I know, like I, but when I'm like, how would I talk about this at the Huffington post? Right. Without sort of this existing conversation, I have new insights and new ways in which I would think about that. Right. So Mm -hmm. the constraint is actually, you know, honing into a different audience, you know, and, and, and going out. And that's just one way that I'll do it. Or how would I do, how would I talk about this subject in 500 words? Because I'm presenting something to Inc and Inc is not going to let me have a 2000 word post, right? They want a certain sort of format. Well, it spurs different sort of thoughts. And sometimes I'll just have to use that when I'm stuck in my own writing Right. It's like, okay, I've got 500 words as if I was writing ink or how would I write this if I were, if I were um, writing it to be primed for syndication because I want to republish it elsewhere. I would write it differently than if I would write it as a native conversation on PF. Super helpful because it applies a new constraint. And so um, whenever you get stuck, that's, you know, you can change your context, which is change where you do the work. Um, you know, maybe not sitting, you know, button chair, maybe the kitchen table is a way better place for you to write or on a couch with your cat fighting with you may work for you may not. Right. But the other is you can, you can switch constraints and see if that helps get the process going, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's some of the most, uh, I think productive, uh, and not in like getting things done way, but in a just sort of like creatively productive 
work that I've done is works where I'm sort of translating my own work from one form to another. So when I did um, my book out on the wire about um, storytelling, audio storytelling and in there to podcasts like, you know, this American life and um, planet money and stuff. Um, so I, was, I did that book in comics form. And then I took those ideas and translated them into a podcast and created a narrative podcast of my own. And so I had to use the tools that they had been talking about that I'd never used before and, and figure out how to do that. And it really, and also switched the focus to be a little bit more directly pedagogical. And then that was super productive in terms of thinking about what are these tools and how do you put them to use? You know, and then I had, you know, an online group and I had to translate stuff into that group. And then I've done live, you know, workshops and I've, you know, translate the ideas again. And, um, you know, right now, this little course I'm doing right now, which is about marketing, essentially, I'm using some of the same tools and that same thinking from that book in this course. And it's just remarkably um, productive to keep going back to the same well, but approaching it with totally different rule sets. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that becomes the art, right, of creating tools, creating ideas and cross-purposing them, recycling, rehashing at a certain point, like we will, we will resist that, right? Cause it's like, I need to be creating new things. It's actually, no, maybe you need to create better or different ways to use the thing you already have. Right. And that's the constraint. And so I see this with um, public speakers a lot who every, every speech is a new speech, right? Cause they never go back to the frameworks and the formulas that worked in the past. I'm like, maybe you can just get really good at using this and teaching it to a different audience in a different context. And you don't have to recreate the will and go through this three day stress fest every time, right. You present to a new audience. But again, that's, um, I guess we'll put that out there as a creative challenge too. Like if you're stuck with, with writing, with writing or creating something, one, give yourself a constraint and what maybe one of those constraints might be, is there something that I've created before that I can use for this particular context and how might that work, you know? Yeah. And I think mashing things up too, like combining one thing with another thing that seems like they're unlike, how can you put them together in a way that's going to come up with, it's going to basically reveal new angles on each of those ideas that you didn't find before. I mean, I think in general, and I've totally suffered from this before um, throughout my career, um, we uh, abandon things too fast. You know, we go from um, working on something intensively for a period of months or even years and then on to the next thing and never kind of allow that first thing to fully bake, essentially. And um, everybody feels like they're in a hurry, I think, to like check off the list and get to the next thing. Um, but I, I feel like most people would benefit from, I mean, even forcing themselves to kind of stick with the same thing for a while, find new ways to interpret it, find new ways to think about it, you know, find those angles, you know, it just, that work from out on the wire is like, for me, it's so rich. Like I've not plumbed the depths at all. There's like so much more I can do with that. Um, and, you know, I've kind of been away from it for the last not entirely, but like mostly for the last year, year and a half, I've been doing much with it. And I'm thinking like now is the time to kind of begin thinking about how to reincorporate that into what I'm currently doing. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I think people think that a hit comes like you create something and it's a hit like once it's created. But when you really look at where hits come from, they're like actually 
many times of recreating or rebroadcasting or retelling or reshowing enough until it becomes a hit, right? And then, um, then you have the sort of problem that all artists, I think, get to where it's like, I don't just want to be showing my hits. I want to be doing this new stuff. And that's a balance. That's a good balance. But, you know, I went to see Michael Franti this last Saturday and he played some new songs and things like that. But I was, you know, as I was walking away with Angela, I was like, well, there were some hits that I really wish he had played, right? That, that I've heard from him so many times, it's not even funny, right? But we forget that when we're the artist, um, there's a lot of value to our hits and people actually do want to see them over and over again. And just because it was a hit for us 10 years ago doesn't mean that there's not some new audience member or listener or reader where it won't be the new hit for them. Right. And so, so much depth right. there, you know? Yeah. And I think that um, the, the, the problem ri- arises when, and it does happen when you're truly and fully over a thing and you're just, you just don't want to talk about it anymore. You're just not interested. You really have plumbed all the debts, but I think mostly that doesn't happen. Like mostly it's not just that you want to replay the same hits the same way for a new audience you want to find new ways into it and, mm-hmm. and new, you want to open up and find, and that's why sort of juxtaposing two elements and seeing what happens between those things might be productive or, you know, definitely like you were saying before, like you're talking about just different, you know, writing in slightly different styles, but, you know, going from, you know, a written thing to a drawn thing, to a, a public presentation, to a workshop, to a, you know, make a slideshow, make a, you know, what can you, how can you translate these things? And the, every act of translation is rewriting. That's true translation in any case, you know? Um, but when you're rewriting your own work, it enriches everything you have to say about it, your understanding of it. And, um, and so, and I think that's, it's not maybe an endless well, but I mean, think of how many, <laughs> books have been written about other books, you know, that other writers find sort of endless inspiration in a given work. And you can do that for your own work as well. You know, you can find endless inspiration in these ideas if you keep applying new constraints, you know, trying new contexts, coming at it from new angle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like sometimes people ask me where I come up with new ideas, like, like it's an effort to, Right. Like, where do you like brainstorm? I'm like, actually, I just have conversations with people and I read my own work and I read other books and that's sufficient for me. I have way more ideas than I'll ever be able to deal with. It seems like. Right. And so just returning back to your own well. And I think that um, that's the beauty, because when when everything can be remade, everything can be refreshed, everything can be touched again. um, You get to ask different questions when you're sitting there on a random Tuesday and you need to create something or you feel that urge to create something. It's not like I'm out of, you know, you can say I'm out of ideas. Okay. Um, or you can say, you know what? Like I'm, I don't have anything that's fresh and burning for me now, but what, what are some things I'd like to rework, recreate, like, you know, reshare, you know, get additional eyeballs on it. How might I do that? And then that can be just enough to keep you going back to it, you know? Yeah. I mean, you always have things that you feel like we're not, seen the way they should have been seen. And if that can form an inspiration, then it's not just about like putting that same thing out again and trying, you know, it's like how, you know, this didn't get seen and therefore there's something that didn't get communicated about it that should have, I believe in this thing. It should be better than this. It should be bigger than this. You know, this idea, I know this resonates when I talk to people about their eyes light up. So what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to 
morph and modify this thing so that it communicates that core idea better. Absolutely. Well, you know, to sort of wrap things up, we've talked a lot about what to do when either you're just sort of stuck in the work or you've gotten stuck not being able to do the work. So, so there's been a lot of talk around that and unlocking some different ways of, of getting creative momentum. Um, as the guest for today's show, you get to leave people with either an invitation or a challenge, depending upon which way it resonates with you, right? So um, based upon what we've talked about today, what invitation or challenge would you like to encourage our, our listeners to, to take the next step on? Well, I think this last thing we've been talking about is actually, I really, I love this idea and I've been really inspired by it myself. So I guess my challenge would be to take something that is really important to you, some idea or work, you know, it could be a long blog post, it could be, you know, anything you've done, a talk or anything like that, and um, transform it into another form. So don't just rewrite it, but like actually take it and make something else out of it. And, um, you know, go from nonfiction to fiction, I don't know, like anything. And um, see if that doesn't start to bring out something really brand new in it for you. Jessica, thanks so much for joining me today on the Productive Flourishing Podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, everybody. So you heard it from Jessica. What idea or work or piece of art or thing that you've created in the past deserves some additional attention and how might you repurpose, recycle, or reshare that thing so that um, it serves you and it serves other people. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.